1: american glutton podcast has a patreon do you hate commercials well we've got a patreon do you want bonus episodes that's on the patreon do you want to hang out and chat in our discord channel that's part of the patreon too we even have an option where you can leave me voicemails all on the patreon so check it out today patreon.com slash american glutton we have a patreon take a moment to like subscribe rate review all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from american glutton is brought to you by trifecta the biggest factor in weight loss for me has been knowing ahead of time what i'm going to eat and having it ready when i need it trifecta meal deliveries have made this completely effortless for me and have been a total game changer in both diet and maintenance Go to www.trifectanutrition.com slash American Glutton to make your life and physical goals a whole lot easier. Today on American Glutton, my guest is Amanda Decadney. She is a photographer, author, and media personality, and she is an old friend of mine. She has, for a long time, hosted a show where she interviews women called The Conversation, and she is branching out to interview men, which I cannot wait for. Please enjoy. You can find her on Instagram at Amanda Decadene. Amanda Decadene, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Ethan,
2: this is such a treat. It really is. Just to be interviewed by you is just,
1: wow, (laughs)
2: amazing.
1: I I feel like it must be weird. You are an interviewer. Like, that's what you do. So is it going to be weird to get interviewed? No, you've been interviewed before.
2: Of course I have. It's but I'll tell you, like, you probably know this when you interview somebody who's a friend. Yeah, it's really it's it's an interesting thing to do because, you know, stuff that you're you're asking them questions that, you know, the answer to.
1: Yeah, I know. Listen, I I will say that not that not that this necessarily would come up with us, but there's certain times where I'm like, because it's my friend, I'm way less inquisitive simply because I'm not a hundred percent sure everything that person's going to want to talk about. You, do you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Oh, yeah. I know
2: exactly what you mean. And there's things that you just don't want to ask because you know that they don't really want to go there, but you would have someone who you didn't
1: know. Right. Because I would feel like <laughs> if it was somebody I didn't know, it would be like, well, that's what we're talking about. That's exactly.
2: Exactly. <gasps> Meanwhile, that's so you and I could talk about anything. We can. What are we going to talk about? Because there's so much we could talk about.
1: Well, two, uh, two, more than two years ago, we were going to do this, and we got derailed by the the entire world collapsing. Yeah, we did. Um, we did. Well, so let's talk about diet. And, you know, listen, I'm a dude. I, I have a lot of female energy in my life because I have girls and a wife and you granddaughters do. and girls coming out of my ears. However, I don't really talk to them about this stuff. Occasionally, I'll have a kid go like, how much protein should I eat a day? And I'm like, it's such an odd question from you. But OK, let's talk about it. You know, and, and then I'll find out that one of my kids is really trying to deadlift with the guys. And I'm like, OK, yeah, <laughs> eat a bunch of protein. I love
2: that. Yeah, <laughs> I love that.
1: But but I think the female perspective on diet, and I try to have as many female guests as possible, is completely different from the male perspective. It
2: is. It is. There's just so much of a different lens on the female body and not to say that I don't have guy friends who also really struggle with their self-image, but certainly as a public person, and you know this better th- than most, you know, there is so much focus on the external and you know, for me, I started working at age 15. I was hosting live late night television in the UK when I was 15 years old. And so there was a lot of focus on the way I looked. And it took me years to appreciate, to kind of care about my body from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. Yeah. And um, and it was a lot of kind of education that needed to happen. And it came through because, because so much of the time it was like, well, what looks good? you know, I need to do, I need to make sure that I look a certain way. And that, you know, over many years was, was quite destructive, you know, um, learning what works for what works for my body so that I can be strong and healthy and look the way I want to look has been a real process.
1: Yeah,
2: And, you know, when I, I had my first daughter at 19 and I put on and a, a lot of weight from being pregnant with that first child. And there was a lot of public criticism of my body. And it was things like, you know, she used to be so hot and now she's not. And, you know, it really, it really was very damaging for me. And it took me many years to kind of um, develop a, a loving relationship with my body because certainly at that time, I it was the cause of a lot of Um, you know, I I was made fun of a lot because of how my body looked post-pregnancy and, and I was mad at my body. I was like, why, you know, why won't you go back to normal? Like it was before. And I realized there is no normal. There is a new normal. And then when I had my, my twins at age 35, my body did the same thing again. This time I had a twin pregnancy. So it was almost more extreme. And then I was like, okay, I've been here before. I know that I can, I can have a body that's healthy, but also looks the way that I want it to look. And, you know, it, it, it has been an ongoing process. Um, I got pre-diabetes during pregnancy that never left. And so I've been managing that and that, you know, for me has meant that I could look at a carbohydrate and put on weight. Right. And man, do I love to eat cookies <laughs> and cake. Yeah, I love to eat cake, but you know what? I now eat cookies and cake that's made with almond flour and monk fruit sweetener. Right, And you know what, they're pretty damn good. Like, and this has been a, this has been a journey. Like this is kind of like the journey I don't talk about that is kind of right behind insignificance. It's right behind recovery and getting sober at 21, which was, that is a journey, right? I've been sober most of my adult life and that is an ongoing process. That's the most important thing. And then right behind that is my relationship with my body and, you know, my health and my, you know, my, Being matching my insides with my outsides and that has been an ongoing journey, too And and I'm still in process
1: with it, you know, how important do you think it is this this what you said? um, Loving myself from the inside out because I, I find I still that's still like a very big work in progress for me But I find when I go into something and I'm very down and negative on myself I don't usually succeed versus when i'm lifting myself up and and talking and and treating myself well and kind to myself i have a little bit more power over whatever i'm doing that that process is so fascinating to me and it's not i I don't think it's really you know I, i i like philosophy and i like to look at things like emotions and go like that's not really real we're reacting somehow to something objective and and the objective thing, it takes no moral position in space and time. And my I'm in charge of how I feel about it. And then I also feel a certain way and that can cause me to react in certain ways. And sometimes I regret them and sometimes I don't. But like this idea of treating myself kindly and loving myself, not not because of or how I've succeeded at a diet or not, but simply for who I am. I find that so important, and, and I want to know, what's your experience been like with that? It's really difficult. I mean,
2: it's really difficult. We all know that affirmative thinking is, not, is good for us in every way. It's good for us spiritually. It's good for us psychologically. It's good for us physically. And yet, it's really hard to do when you have, you know, emotions are strong, Reactive patterns and imprints are strong and it is really hard to not let those take over. It is one of the ongoing challenges and things that I have to work on is mindset. And I am always so curious when I meet people who are able to kind of, I don't want to say control their mindset because I don't want to get in a fight with controlling my mindset um, I don't even want to look at it that way, but you know, they have mastered the art of positive thinking that to me is fascinating because I'm such an emotional being and my emotions can run me and and really take over. And that is one of the things, I mean, I, I work on it every day and boy, is it tiring. I literally <laughs> said to, to someone this week, Do you think there'll ever be a time where I don't have to spend 85% of my day trying to self-regulate what I'm feeling? Right.
1: Do you find, though, that with time and practice that it gets easier? Like it becomes like I, I know what you're saying. Some huge portion of my time is spent in a similar way. But I do think the effort behind it has lessened up because now harsh, not not innate, but it's it's becoming more a part of my routine.
2: Yes, you've integrated it. I've integrated it. It's part of who I am. You know, it's like, what kind of person do you want to be? You know, who do you want to be? What kind of parent do you want to be? What kind of partner do you want to be? You know, looking at all the areas of your life and going, it's definitely better for me and for everyone else when I do this. And therefore, the same way that sobriety is built into and recovery is built into every day, it's just part of the fabric of who I am. And self-regulating and mindset is part of every day I start my day off with, you know, between 15 and 30 minutes, sometimes an hour if I can get it, um, of, you know, the things that I do to put me into a mindset that is positive, you know, and that for me is, you know, I have a couple of books that I read. I do a meditation. I do some kind of movement of my body, whether that's walking or yoga or swimming. Um, I read something that is inspiring and then I get on with my day and it just kind of shifts my brain into a sort of energetic um, space that I hope I will stay in as long as possible throughout the day.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then I think that, Um, that kind of practice allows us then to seek out and find the tools because I think of every kind of diet or regimen as a tool. Any, any of these things are just a tool. I don't think any of them are the be all end all to like, my life is solved because I did this diet, but they're oftentimes sold to us that way. And sold to us as though, like, this X works for everyone and everyone should just do this. Well, this
2: will fix you. This right. will fix you. This is the answer. Yeah. And it is it is never one thing that is the answer. And what might be the answer for you is not the answer for me necessarily. You know, and all of our bodies are different. You know, we're all different. We our perspectives, our bodies are, you know, we have similarities because we're human beings, right? there's, there's, there's a kind of certain amount of similarities, but then there's also the nuance of individuality. And it's about, for me, it's been about really educating myself. Like at one point I did the ketogenic diet and I put on weight. (laughs) I was like, what the fuck? You know, and my nutritionist was like, well, that's just not possible. And I was like, it's possible because it's happening. I never went into ketosis. I just put on weight. Yeah, And now some people would say that's just not possible, but it it was, and that was the facts. And I had to, I tried that; that did not work for me, you know. Um, so- I've
1: I've put on weight. Listen, if you are consuming more energy than you're using, your body's going to store it as fat. So one way or another, it's certainly possible. If you did it, I've also put on weight doing keto. It's it's certainly possible.
2: Well, it I, I, and yet. I had to try things and also how do I feel while I'm doing something? You know what I mean? Each one of these things, like you said, they're tools and they are, they are not to be, you can't, if you look at it literally like a tool, you're not always going to just use a hand drill. You know, you're going to need a hammer. You're going to need a saw. You're going to need different things at different times. And that's how I look at learning about myself, you know, and understanding that my body is connected to my spirit is connected to, you know, all of it. Body, mind, spirit is connected. I cannot be learning and and paying attention to one and not the other because I have prediabetes. How that manifests in me is if I eat sugar, I go to sleep. It's like my family jokes that some people shouldn't be, you know, smoking weed and driving or drinking and driving. I should not be eating a cookie and driving. (laughs) I'm like a drunk person, you know, it's like, or a stone person. I'm like falling asleep and I can't process. I'm very slow to process. And I mean, that's real for me. It's like I use, I will, if I can't sleep and I, and I, if I can't sleep, I will eat a cookie as opposed to, you know take something else that make me go to sleep because it does the same thing. So I had to learn that about my body, that if I, if I'm going to eat anything that has any kind of raising my insulin, it must be at night before I go to bed. I can't do it in the day. You know, basic stuff like that, that takes you a while to work kind of learn yourself, you know, and go, Oh, how does this affect me? Oh, when I eat like this, um, I feel like this, you know? And so for me, It's been years of kind of learning myself and also something that worked in my twenties or thirties or four, you know, might not work in my forties. Right. It might not, you know, as, and as women's bodies evolve and change over time and your hormones change and your, you know, your consciousness changes and you learn more and it's like you have to then adapt to what those needs are. And for example, right now, I am feeling very strongly about, I I can't eat animals. Okay. I went from eating like lamb chops because I really like them and filet mignon. And I just can't eat animals because during COVID, I spent so much time with my animals and I started to feel like, what's the difference between my dog and that cow? You know, if I think my dog is, I'm connected to my dog and I have this profound, intimate relationship with my dog, which I do, why would I not have it? Why can I not have that with a cow or a sheep or a goat? And it's just, I just have to listen to my body because right now it's just saying, don't eat them now. I don't know what I'm going to do for protein because I need protein. I My body needs it. My brain needs it. But I'm having a conflict because my spirit is saying, don't eat the animals.
1: Do you do you we, uh, I, listen? I understand the moral issue with animals, but w- do you draw the line at stuff like way like is way fair, uh, fair game for you or you want to be v- ultra vegan?
2: I don't want to participate in anything that is harmful to animals right now and i also have chickens and the thing is is like i know each one of those chickens they've each got characters it started with the chickens ethan where i was like i can't eat the chickens because i've
1: got chickens listen you ostensibly got them to eat them or to eat their eggs eat
2: their eggs right yes and then i became friends with them because i was taking care of them and then I was like, oh no, I have a and they're all so different. Their characters are so different. Like one's a total bitch. One is super friendly. You know? And I was like, now I have a relationship with the chickens. I I I, I can't eat I can't eat the friends, you know? Yeah. So it's a moral dilemma because I know my body needs high protein. It just yeah. does. That's the kind of body I have, that's the kind of brain I have. And
1: so You can certainly get a lot of protein from plants, and there are even Uh, protein supplements like pea protein powder where you can get that's
2: high lectin though.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Like the amino acid breakdown is not uh, maybe not as bioavailable as animal protein. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a quandary you're in.
2: It's a quandary. And I, and I, and I didn't choose it. It just came upon me where I started noticing that I was leaving the animal protein on the side of my plate at yeah. my meals. And I was like, Oh God, what is going on here? Maybe I need to disguise it more, you know? Yeah. And so, but, but I feel like I I am pretty educated about food and also how, how I eat it. Right. Like, was it, was it humanely killed or was it, does it come from a factory farm? You know, there's something like that makes a difference too. So there's a lot of considerations when eating
1: a lot. Sure. I've had this idea many times. Usually it's with my kids telling me something's gross and we're traveling or something like that. And I'm like, this is no more gross than anything you're totally used to eating. You know, I had to explain to a kid recently and this kid is 15 now by the way so not really like a little kid the kind of stuff uh that went into a chicken nugget you know she assumed that it was just a chicken breast that was battered and then deep fried and you know i'd say like no this is probably cartilage and beaks and feet and all that stuff is what's going into a chicken nugget i would assume um and made into some slurry and then shaped and battered and fried uh to me, it's not gross. To me, it doesn't bum me out. Like you know, this could it be. It bums me out. I I understand. No, I understand. I I'm saying like it's I. It's like what un- goes into a sausage. Right. Yeah. You could go to the sausage factory. It's gonna make me hungry. You would never eat a sausage again.
2: No, I would never eat a sausage again. And when you think about, it, it's like the bulls and the hooves and the you're just like the bits that nobody wants. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but again, educating them is like then they can have a choice, right? Right you know like my son is you know he's you know my my twins are 15 and my daughter is a plant-based kid um from her own you know from choosing that and my son is a fucking carnivore man yeah you know he is like i'm like dude when's the last time you saw a vegetable
1: not you know what i'm saying yeah no
2: he's like i mean he'll maybe he'll have like a wedge salad with blue cheese dressing and like ribs, you know, but he's like super carnival and you know, I have to let them be what they want, what they have to eat, what they want to eat.
1: Yeah. I took my youngest. It's very hard to find. You can't find like an abattoir or anything like that in Los Angeles where you're actually seeing the whole animal get broken down. But there was, and I doubt that it still exists because it's such a small community in Los Angeles that hunts. But in La Crescenta, there was a butcher that processed game meat. So if you shot a deer, you take it to this butcher and they break it down for you. So I took the kids in to see, look, there's Bambi. And I just want you to know that this is where meat comes from. Like, I want you to understand that it was a living thing um, that was cute and cuddly and furry. And, And I think Grace uh was vegetarian for like five minutes after that although she didn't she she didn't equate that to bacon so when bacon came around and she was like but i want bacon and (laughs)
2: bacon's the exception to the rule
1: right and that kind of derailed her veganism why
2: is that that still happens to me i smelled bacon the other day i was like yep those i don't care those little cute pigs uh, bacon smells
1: good (laughs) babe is delicious
2: Babe is delicious.
1: So, uh, so how are you navigating this? How are you getting protein?
2: I mean, I'm having tofu. I'm having, I am having pea protein. I am having some whey protein. Um, I am eating some like feta cheese, um, some cheese, but it's, you know, it's, it's really difficult. I'm not eating enough protein is the truth. Some fish. um shrimp i haven't and then the other day i heard someone talking about how there's this new study that like lobsters have feelings i was like i'm turning that radio off now yeah like i cannot be hearing that the the fish now have feelings um that's a nirvana song actually about fish having feelings
1: I, but I, I, mean, I was like have you ever heard a lobster be boiled alive like they boil them alive yes, and it's they Yeah, it's horrendous yeah no but it's that's the really air coming
2: awful. out of their claws ethan is it I am choosing to believe that okay.
1: I think that's little lobster screaming. We have feelings and this hurts
2: That's that's what I I am afraid that you're right And they've started to talk about this on the show that show and that's when I turned it off. Yeah. I was like I Cannot so I have that's kind of like one of my lost sources of protein is shrimp and fish uh, But then you have to have low mercury fish and
1: oh, I just had an idea There's a great argument for uh, mollusks being vegan friendly. And the idea is they're more like a fruit than they are an animal. They actually don't have nervous systems. So scallops and mussels and clams and oysters and things like that, they do not behave at all in the same way that animals do.
2: Okay, that's reassuring. Yeah. It is reassuring cuz I thought, oh my god, don't let me start a relationship with a lobster or shrimp at this point. Right. Like
1: fuck you. <laughs> up. Just
2: just no, I cannot. I cannot. So, you know, look, I'm listening to my body and it's telling me this is what you need to do right now and you know, I will say my carb intake has increased. Hummus. A lot of hummus.
1: There's good a protein lot of hummus. Beans. Yeah.
2: Yes. So um, hummus and then, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I don't want to eat too many beans. Yeah. A- and the lectins. So my, my husband, um, you know, Nick, he, he did um, the Gundry diet a long time ago because he had severe eczema and it completely got rid of it. And so he does not touch lectins. Right. And so i'm very aware of where the lectins live in foods and so i also try to you know peel your
1: cucumbers and get rid of the seeds yeah for me i I, i'm a fan of that because i have a friend who had eczema also that cleared up when he excised uh lectins from his diet i just go like selling that diet the gundry method or whatever the hell it's called as a weight loss thing, it, it, to me, it doesn't make any sense because he he doesn't really get into portions. And if he does, it really does come down to like a one size fits all, like everybody just eat this.
2: Right. And, you know, I did do um, macros for a while, and that was really interesting for me. Um, that was super interesting. it It gave me a kind of hypervigilance on food that ended up being not healthy for me. Right. Right. Because I was so preoccupied with how much and all the different macros that were involved in everything. And it made me, it, it, it was helpful for a while and it really did work with weight loss. Yeah. But my mental, the mental piece of it, was not the psychological piece of it was not great because I was hyper focused on it and
3: hi this is Craig Robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA the future isn't scary not realizing its potential however could be just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: Now I'm in a place where I I do, I know enough about nutrients, macros, what my body needs, calories, portions, types of calories that I know how to eat in a way that that works for my body. It's like a language that I really can speak now. Yeah. And I choose to you know, speak that language, or if I choose to go off that, I know what's going to happen.
1: Right. And, and how are you with the externals? Like the, the, the internal matters more. That's, that's uh, the upper echelon of your goal. Yeah. How are you with the externals? Are you happy? Are you struggling?
2: Well, I'll tell you, this is the thing about me is I hate exercise. Right. I hate it. I was a trained gymnast up until age 11. And so I had to train, you know, three hours a day, five days a week. And on, week- on Saturdays, it was five hours a day. And so that gave my body um, a muscle memory and it gave it a structure and a muscle tone that has been with me my whole life. But I hate exercising. And I don't, I don't think I have endorphins, by the way. I just don't think I do. <laughs> No, you're laughing. I don't think I do. <laughs> Even when you were doing gymnastics as a kid, you you never felt good. No, I never felt good. I always felt exhausted. Wow. And I feel exhausted when I work out. I just feel like, oh my god, it is. It's like I never feel good. And and so and I and I really don't like it. I just don't like it. I don't want to do it. I don't like it. And so um, I've like I'm looking at my body and I'm going, wow your body has maintained so much without you doing very much aesthetically. Um, Aesthetically, it's in a point where I'm like, oh, gravity has now come along because I'm at a certain age where it's like, you know, my stomach or my butt or my arms doesn't have the same tone. And, you know, it's up to me if I want to do something about it. I've been able to kind of skate by my whole life with with still looking pretty good without doing much exercise. But that has changed. And so now it's up to me. Now I have to put the work in if I want to maintain what I've got. Yeah. And during COVID, I was so sedentary that when I kind of came up and came up for air, I was like, oh, a bunch has changed. Like two years of my life went by and I didn't really move. And so... It has been, you know, the last year and a half has been about getting my, getting my pre-diabetes numbers down. What that means is that, you know, the more weight I get off, the the less my numbers are. There's a correlation. So I've had to work really hard um, with my diet. You know, I would say diet is kind of probably 80% of what I had to do. And, and then make a conscious choice. If I want my body to look stronger and more toned um i'm gonna have to do that exercise and so what is that gonna look like
1: yeah yeah i i I, it's tricky because from my standpoint and i have a kid uh, one of my kids who i'll drag to the gym with me and she'll come and then she's always tired at the end and 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 i'm at the end i'm like don't you feel great and she's like no i'm I don't feel good. I don't like doing this. And I was like, okay, well, you don't, I, have am, to her. I yeah. am her. I don't know what to do for her because my experience has always been, I feel better. That's the, that's the thing that keeps me going back to the gym. So like hearing mm. that I wouldn't, I don't know how to solve that, but like if you, I would say even, um, you know, walking is exercise and if you can find somewhere beautiful to walk, that could be enjoyable.
2: I mean, look, Ethan, sometimes I'd see, you know, photo, I'd see you at the gym and I'd be like, maybe I'll go work out with Ethan. You know, maybe that would be fun if I could like do it with you. And like, you're so good at it and I'm so bad at it. And so it would be funny. And like, we would have a good time and we would laugh, you know, and and that's probably true. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I'm strong. Like, I'm crazy strong. Like, I can lift things that grown men are like, whoa, you know, like I ride motorbikes my whole life and big motorbikes. Like I can, I'm, I'm strong, you know, physically, like I can lift things. I can move things. I'm good with strength. I'm not good with cardio. Right. I don't want to do cardio, yeah. but I'm strong. So I can lift like serious weight for someone who hates exercise. So sometimes I have a fantasy of like, maybe I'll go work out with Ethan, you know, and Anytime. then I think- Thank you. I, I, I know if I send you a text and say, Ethan, I want to come out, work out with you, you'd be like, let's do it. You know, <laughs> so for me, it's like, and I get bored. I get bored as well. It's like, oh, I got to do like 20 of these and, and then take a break for 30 seconds and 20 of those. It's like, it's so boring to me, you know? Yeah. So I've tried to think about what can I do that is, that is, keeps my attention. And that's like, I have a friend that's rock climbing right now and she's getting ripped. But she, cause she's, and she loves rock climbing, Yeah, like her arms and like, even just like her weight, everything's going the way she needs it to, but she's found it through doing something that she loves. And maybe I just haven't found that. So I'm kind of, I don't like group activity. And when everyone goes to the left, I've tried to do like workout classes or dance classes. I don't know what it is. It's some neurological thing, but everyone goes to the left. I go to the right. I don't know. They say, put your left hand, you know, do this. I'm the opposite. You're like slapping
1: people in the face. I
2: I am. I'm just it's terrible. It's terrible. So I that doesn't work for me. I'm trying to. And by the way, I want to do things that that I don't want to say feel good, but like I enjoy doing.
1: Yeah. You know, I I just don't I don't believe people will stick to something they don't enjoy or, or, or it will just become so painful that it's like. You, you're you going to go and waste a huge portion of your life doing something that you really don't enjoy. I I, I think it's a exactly. waste of time. Yeah, it
2: is. And, and it's not, it's addressing one aspect of you. And, you know, I started off saying this and I think about this, that if something isn't in support of all, all aspects of you, the mind, body, spirit, it, you're going to create an imbalance in your life. And so physically is it doing what I need it to do? Is it elevating my heart? Is it, uh, you know, creating, is it strengthening my bones? You know, is it, is it, you know, is it doing what I need to do physically? If the answer is yes, great. What is it doing for my spirit? You know, is it, is it stressing me out and taxing me so much? And I dread it every single time that it's putting me, is I, that's raising my cortisol levels. So that is not working. Yeah. You know, like I'm, I always try to look for at this stage of the game things that holistically fit.
1: Yeah. I think and that's smart. That's what you have to do. It is. It for,
2: for any kind of sustainability. Yeah. Like what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Um I have a question and and I want to pose it simply because it hasn't permeated my experience and and I and I sometimes wonder why and I don't know why. But like when I was a kid and and a huge um A huge, huge portion of my career was built on being overweight. Like that was why I was part of your identity. Yeah, 100 percent. And and there were a lot of jokes in certain things that were directed at the character I was playing for that reason. And that was all fine. It was kind of totally acceptable to make fun of a fat person. Um, But like when you were 19, had your first kid gained weight and were kind of uh, ridiculed in the press for it. I don't believe that could happen. I don't believe that would happen today. Might happen a little bit. Certainly people on the Internet are assholes and and maybe. But I don't know that big press outlets would be doing that. And I think that as
2: the British tabloid media,
1: are they rough,
2: but they still talk about women's bodies. I mean, publications like the Daily Mail, they can't mention a woman's name without describing her body. Right. Right. Slender legs. No, or I, I, I'm. Whatever. Yeah,
1: no, hundred percent. Women mm-hmm. are still mm-hmm. highly scrutinized publicly yeah. for their bodies, but there has been a big urge towards more acceptance of larger yes. bodies. Yes. For me, I look around and I go like, I see co- co- the the society trying on this front. I I don't feel it personally at all, and I'm not saying. That it's because of the outside. The outside is changing. I don't, I, it doesn't, I've experienced nothing. I'm still just as hard on myself as I was, you know, when I was 500 pounds. Maybe not, maybe that's not true, but I still have those thoughts arise and I go, well, I don't think the people at the beach are having this thought about me. Why am I having this thought about me? Mm. Have you noticed any shift for yourself? Like, Society yes. is changing, do you do you feel a change? Yes, I do.
2: I do feel. You know, I'm a photographer. I photograph a lot of models. I've been photographed my entire adult life, and so I'm very aware of the cultural beauty norms that has expanded. There are models who I know that I've worked with that I know personally. Who would be considered, you know, fat girls? They just would. They were. They were called fat their whole lives. Right. And, like when we
1: were teenagers, they had no yeah. shot at modeling.
2: Oh no, definitely not. And I look at two of them. I'm thinking of in particular, Paloma Elsesser and Ashley Graham, both of whom um, are exquisitely beautiful. Who's bodies would never have been accepted in mainstream culture. And I love to see when Paloma was put on the cover of American Vogue, it was such a statement. It was such a statement for accepting, expanding the cultural beauty norm. And given that the average size of the average American woman is size 16, that's the average. which is what i mean i, I don't want paloma s- sizing is now necessarily but
1: you know i don't know I mean, what's i don't know what sizes i, we, I never we buy, need to what's be representing
2: model? we we need to represent the world right so there is more acceptance i think um and by the way we're talking about normal bodies we're not talking about an idealized standard of women's bodies that is a very small percentage of women You know, my husband will say to me, like, is that body real or not? And I'm like, well, you can see her waist is tiny. Her ass is much larger and her boobs are much larger. Like it's it's a rarity that women are born with that kind of a shape. Now, now maybe to some degree, because I have that shape, you know, you know, that was my shape I had for years, like super curvy. But I know what it what it what it takes to by that kind of shape because I see women all over the place and they have small tiny bones, tiny little waist and then they've got giant boobs and giant bums. And it's like, well, that that is bought. Those are that's a bought bum and boobs right there. And I don't have a judgment of it. I'm just saying that the the cultural norm has expanded to much curvier women to the point where now you've got women who were who used to be in the ideal beauty standard which is very slim now buying boobs and bums so that they fit into the cultural norm so yes it has changed quite a lot i think
1: right i mean that's all i had never even considered that but like as we were as we were talking i was like when did this happen because marilyn monroe was not slight right she was a curvy
2: girl super curvy and but it goes through phases when you look at like fashion like the 50s woman looked a certain way 60s, 70s woman. I love the 70s woman. I mean, like you look at 70s playboys, beautiful, full boobs, curvy, big bushes. You know, you start to get into the 2000s, there's no bushes. <laughs>
1: you right. know,
2: it's like the bodies have changed. You know, the 90s were super thin, wave looking girls, you know, with like super flat chested almost and like straight down without the shape. You know, it's like f- fashion. And body norms have changed and evolved over time. And whilst I think that we're in a time that is is much more expansive and inclusive of beauty, there is of course still now the cultural norm that giant boobs and giant butts are considered desirable. So you have a lot of people who are now buying those. Right. There's always an up and a downside of all of it, right? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I just I just go out into the world and go imagine like, being a woman. Ethan, it's very confusing. I, I cannot imagine yeah. being a woman. No, no, it's it's I'm very, very happy to n- not have been a woman. I love women and, and I just want to go like I, 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 I wish I could truly empathize, but I can't. And f- whatever I can do for you, that's what I'll do. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Like I just uh, mostly <laughs> I'm hands off um
2: well you're smart that's because you're married a long time and you got a lot of daughters so you are smart i love you whatever i can do for you but i'm hands off
1: (laughs) right um okay you have for a long time been very very uh a part of women's voices interviewing women propping women up and you are moving into the arena of men what was what what brought that on
2: Well, I, as you said, I have with my interview series, The Conversation, I have interviewed women for the last, you know, 15 years and I've photographed women for the majority of my career. And I've always been telling stories about women. Why I shifted to interviewing men is, you know, I have a 15 year old son. I'm married to my husband for 20 years. I have some, one of my best friends is a guy. I have a lot of, I love men um, as you love women. You know, I love men. And I I also have been looking at the culture that my son is growing up in. And, and I'm very aware that men have had a massive cultural awakening over the last few years. And I've been having fascinating conversations with men about masculinity and what does it mean to be a guy today? And there's a lot of unanswered questions. And there's also, um, I think, a need for genders to be able to communicate about subject matters that, that we just haven't been brave enough to speak about, you know, genders need to have their own spaces because uniquely, as you said, uniquely you as a man can understand the experience as a woman and vice versa. I can empathize with you, but I really don't know. Cause, cause I'm a woman yeah, and I'm a, I'm a cis white woman and that's my experience in the world. So I can empathize all I want, but the, the, the most I can do is to invite and create a space where multiple genders can communicate about subject matter and issues that I think we need to discuss together. And I'm really curious about how do we redefine masculinity because masculinity is being redefined. It has been redefined by sheer nature of what has happened with the women's movement over the last just five years. And so we don't have definitive shape of what does it mean to be a man today a lot of male friends that I have are like, I don't even know anymore. Uh, I, I'm a, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of confusion. And I'm speaking to men, everybody from, you know, Matthew McConaughey about how he was taught about consent, what he says, how he teaches his kids about consent to Charlemagne the God about mental health and um, you know, as a black man in America, what does it mean? What does masculinity mean? Um, You know, I'm interviewing Mike Tyson next week. I'm interviewing really interesting men who have a perspective about what it means to be a guy and masculinity um, and, and how do I help invite and help, how do I help invite a conversation around masculinity? Because I think that in order to really move forward, we need to have a space where men can be a part of, of this conversation.
1: I'm so excited to see some of these because I think a lot of the I think a, there's a lot of hesitancy and I and I know that won't be the case with you because I know you very well and I think you're very open and you're not judgmental. But I think you'll have men who won't communicate because they are scared, you know, because yes. like saying, you know, some idea they have, which is a. Uh, uh, amenable to other things it's not fixed and rigid but it's an idea can get them in trouble in the world now you, you know what i mean and it's like how do we how do we like really sh- how do we evolve our ideas if we can't share them you know if we can't we talk actually about
2: cannot them. learn we we cannot learn if we don't make mistakes making mistakes is an inherent part of learning of growth By making mistakes, you go, oh, damn, that did not end well. Or that did not feel good. I am not doing that again. Like, we have to be able to fuck up. We have to be able to make mistakes. And yet we cannot do it in a public forum anymore because that could be the end of your career or your marriage or whatever it is. And that speaks to the larger issue of cancel culture, which affects all genders. However, there is a specific culture that is ruthless with men and i do not want to be a part of that culture i want to be a part of a culture that is solution based and that is reaching across the aisle and trying to build bridges and that's why i'm doing this
1: series i think it's a, i think it's a very important undertaking that you're you're embarking upon because you know listen peop, some people do things where i go like you know i don't know maybe that person Needs to be excused from society for a minute. I, I don't know. Yeah, totally, but yeah. There, but then there are uh, many instances where I go like, I don't know. Maybe that person could really learn from this and grow and should be welcomed back. And they're and they're not a lot of the time. Or if they are, it's like on very different terms and. And I think that um, by forcing those other terms, like people are just going to go exist over here and they're going to do just fine. Like their career hasn't, their careers changed dramatically, but not ended. That's just going to reinforce whatever they, there's going to be no learning or growth in that way. It's going to be, well, I have to be right. I'm going to go into my corner and I'm going to just be right for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? The
2: only way that, We can see if people have really learned is by having them back in culture and in society. There are some people where it's like, you're never coming back. Like, we can just send you to the island, wherever that is, and like, you're done. Right. Or are those people or fake
1: your suicide in the jail in New York. Whatever you want.
2: Totally. Whatever you want to <laughs> do. Right. Whatever works for you. But like, we're never having you back in mainstream society. And then there's the other people where it's like, actually, this is pretty nuanced. And let's unpack this and let's look at this. And I have one friend um, who has been accused of assault by multiple women. And, um, you know, over the years, I've had an ongoing dialogue with him about, well, how is it that all these women have this experience and you have a different experience? And I've been really grateful to be able to unpack this with him in such detail to really understand why he had that perspective he had and why they had the perspective they had. And what's been amazing for me is to see his ownership of what he did do and see his growth and see how his mindset is so different today because of what he learned. Yeah. And that to me has been really encouraging. You know, um, there is uh, something called restorative justice, which, you know, is incredible. If it's, if it's possible, it's not always possible for, for many reasons. Sometimes the, the, the offense is so heinous that it would be re-traumatizing to the person to even have to sit close to that person again. But there are some cases Ashley Judd talked about restorative justice where she sat with the man who sexually assaulted her, who raped her. I mean, you know, what profound healing is possible if we could put a, some kind of structure and tools in place to help people to heal, taking ownership of the things we've done in our past is step number one, like true ownership internally, we don't need to tell anybody else that we've made, taken ownership, but for us, that is the first thing that needs to happen. There's nothing without that, you know, but there's also, I'm finding what I'm finding so interesting in talking to men is, you know, some of them, the same way that, that, that different bodies were in fashion at different times, different behavior was in fashion at different times. And a lot of the people I've spoken to were like, that's just how we did it. You know, you didn't have to ask somebody, may I kiss
3: you? Right. You
2: just lent in and tried to kiss them. And if they wanted to, they did. And if they didn't, they didn't. But, but, but now that's non-consensual kissing. And I could, that could be a problem. So, okay, well, in theory, that's true. In theory, what you're saying, when you say it like that, like it's true, could be a problem. However, the game plan has now changed. And so for my son's generation, he has to be aware and my daughter has to be aware too. There's a whole different dialogue. This is the way things are now. It did not used to be like that. Yeah. It is now.
1: Yeah. I, in in that sense, I am so glad to have girls because I can, I first of all, I was never good with getting a girl to kiss me. This was like not my strong point at all. So I don't have anything really in that regard to teach a young man, but I can tell teach my daughters emphatic, no, you know, and vital targets on a man to attack if they need to like, and this is what I'm going like, I'll, t- I, you know, all day long, we're going to learn eye gouges and groin stomps. And you know what I mean? And like, Ethan, I enjoy you should
2: teach them. a class on this. <laughs> yeah. You should. You're such a you're such a girl dad. I mean, and it's terrible that we need to teach our kids this. It's terrible that when I put my daughter, you know, if I consider setting my daughter in an Uber, I'm like, you must wear pants. And, you know, she's like, oh, that's going to make a difference. I was like, hey, just stop. Stop 50 percent of people looking at you if you're. There's no less skin, right? Like, so why should I have to adjust the way I I dress so that because men can't control themselves? Because until they can, do you got to you got well, to go with what is?
1: Yeah, but also, there's been no point in history where there haven't been scumbags. No point. No matter exactly. what society said was okay. There's it, no matter what culturally is acceptable and unacceptable. There are gonna be some real dirt bags out there. So. I my point to my daughters is just like, I don't care if a person's supposed to ask you today whether they're allowed to kiss you or not. Fine. If that's the rule, fine. I hope to never be in a situation in for the rest of my life where I have to, like, go through even thinking about that. Right. I'm married. I I'm, That's done. Sure. My wife doesn't want to kiss me. She pushes my face away and we're, right. and we're fine. But right.
3: that's
1: for your my, love language. Yeah, exactly. For my girls, like. I don't care if guys are supposed to ask you now. There's going to be a guy who possibly, hopefully not, but there could be a guy. I know a guy exists. Who isn't going to ask? Who isn't going to ask about anything? And fuck that guy, kick him in the balls, gouge his eyes out, fishhook his cheek, scream no, scream fire. You know what I mean? Like totally. That's that's kind of my position.
2: Ethan, I'm going to tell you that when my kids were little, I used to do fire drills with them about what to do if somebody touched them inappropriately. Both my kids, my boy and my girl. I was like, this is what you do. And I would actually have them say it out loud. You know, no, don't touch me. And like, I would have them verbalize it so that they were used to saying those words. It wasn't alien language for them. And then you run away and you tell an adult, you know, like we had a whole... Like Nick, my husband was like, I think you're just putting the fear of God in them. And I was like, I mean, I had to really check myself on that one. You know, like, am I putting fear into them or am I preparing them? Should anything, God forbid, happen?
1: You know, there's the other side to this, too, where I read a headline and I didn't read the article. I should have. And it's very lazy of me. But I read a New York Post and granted, it's the New York Post. So they're sensationalizing anything they, they write. But it said that a law was passed in New York. That in nightclubs, uh, it's now illegal to stare at a person without permission. Oh, I saw permission. that.
2: I saw that headline too. That and was, I'm I just, just like, come
1: on, guys, this is Dude, there's too much. Yeah, it's, it's a too much. Too Guess
2: what? Some people will sue. <laughs> right. What, and the, the, here's the sad part. You know, the Me Too movement is one of the most profound and needed movements of the last decade—not decade, century.
0: Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
2: It really is. And there are people who will abuse every single movement for their own personal gain. Yeah. As you said, there will always be scumbags. There will always be people who use incredible, culturally significant movements for their own needs. Yeah. That happens. And we have to learn and be discerning between who those people are and who are the people who are really using something as it should be used.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This law in New York, I, I mean, yeah, and I, that
2: law of looking at someone in a nightclub, I mean, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing in a nightclub? Right. Aren't you there I to mean, see people? I mean, I am sorry, but, you know, I mean, look, you're a married person. I'm a married person. If my husband's in a nightclub at 2 a.m., my question is, what are you doing? Right. Like, sorry, single people are not really going to nightclubs unless they're looking to get laid or, I mean, married people. You, you you're there. You're there to look at people and get drunk or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it. It, it made me really chuckle because I and, and I guess I need to tell my kids like eye gouging and groin stomps for a person looking at you might be might be an <laughs> overreaction. You, you know? must
2: remember to tell them that, Ethan. Yeah. Hopefully they won't
1: be any nightclubs in New York anytime soon. But yeah. I mean,
2: we hope not, but I don't know. If they were like us, maybe they were.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. They probably already have been if they were like right. us. Right. Amanda, thank you so much.
2: Ethan, I'm so happy to talk to you.
1: You too. I'll talk to you soon.
2: Okay. Bye.
3: And now for the Q&A. Here is a question from Austin. Hi, Austin. Austin says... I often find my own experience in the ways in which you process your experiences with food, diet, and weight loss on this podcast. I have been overweight since I was young, and I am grateful to have found such a therapeutic resource through American Glutton.
1: Ah, That's so sweet. Thank you, Austin.
3: Nice, Austin.
1: And I'm glad. I think like that's the, that's the hope that people can relate.
3: He says, One question I do have is how you and your wife manage eating different things at the same meal. What does that look like on a practical level? Do you try to eat similar things during shared meals or is it okay if you have rice, chicken and broccoli and she has pasta? I am married and this is something I would like to discuss with my wife as a part of my weight loss journey and I would like to have an example of what it looks like in the context of a healthy relationship. Again, thank you so much for what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is tricky. Um, I think there have been different phases throughout our life uh, because um, we've got a bunch of kids and now we're kind of at that stage where our older kids um, actually live in another state and our younger kids go to school in another state. Our younger kids are just about no longer our responsibility, which really that never is complete. Um, But so I will say like, Back when we had four young kids and, uh, you know, making dinner was making a meal for six people, it was kind of a pain in the ass. But I would typically not be eating um, what the kids were eating, you know. And I will say, like, my wife wasn't always eating what the kids were eating. There was kind of like, you know, an adult salad and maybe a protein for us. And then the kids would have, you know, quote unquote, healthy chicken nuggets and (laughs) some kind of a starch. Um, But I, I, I do often now if we cut to today. Honestly, my wife is eating what I'm eating. She's just eating it in a smaller portion, actually, than what I eat typically. Um, And the only place where I'd say we differ is that when I make a salad or something like that, I will uh, give her more dressing. Um, because she's not really on a diet. So, with stuff like lean protein, she doesn't eat nearly as much lean protein as I do. And I watch my fat intake more than her and my carb intake more than her. So, her plate might look like it's got a bit more rice than mine, um, a bit more salad with a bit more salad dressing and a much smaller, uh, serving of protein and mine will look like a lot of protein and a little bit of salad and a little bit of rice. Uh, but we're not generally eating different foods. Like if we were at a restaurant and ordering different meals, that seems like a pain in the butt to me to be cooking two different meals at home. But I, but I have, I'm, I mean, I have certainly done that. I think that With a spouse, it's important to get some kind of an agreement. So, like, uh, you said you related to this podcast a lot. So, I'm assuming that you have or are looking at massive weight loss, which takes a long time. And so, you know, within that, are the foods that you're eating stuff that she's just repulsed by? Um, Because I, I I would try to get some agreement of, like, you know... Can we eat this way for the most part, and so therefore we don't have to make two meals where you're having pasta and I'm not. Uh, there have been many times. My wife's also not a sober person, and I'm a sober person, so she she might have a, a cocktail with dinner, and I'm not having that. So I don't have any feeling about uh, you know being triggered to want to eat her dinner or drink her beverage. Um, because it's something that I'm denying myself. I, I, I don't, I don't have that so much. And there's tons of food in my house um, that's really just shit that my kids buy or make us buy. That is stuff that I won't eat. Um, that I kind of don't even really think about as food. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of complicated in that way. I, God, was this helpful at all to Austin Page?
3: well i think in some way it probably was because you're you you just brought up what i always what always resonates with me when you talk about this topic is some form of agreement right so he you know you're basically saying talk to your wife and get some agreement of what you can have maybe they don't eat the exact same thing and maybe she prefers pasta to her Rice. I'm making this up, but they agree on protein and vegetables and so yeah, like the, a small alteration or, you know, for sure. The point
1: I would make is for you, Austin, if um, you're having a lot of trouble right now and you've decided to give up pasta and pasta is not a part of your diet and your wife is eating pasta every day and that's a problem for you because it's very hard to abstain from pasta for you because it's in your face every day. I would have a conversation with her, you know, um, it's been decades now that I've been sober, but there certainly was a time period where I was not super comfortable around alcohol. And for that time period, my wife wasn't drinking and there was no alcohol in our house and she was completely fine with that. And then, uh, after some time where It was fine. Like I didn't feel unsafe anymore, but this was, uh, you know, I'm talking about years went by. Then we went wine tasting and I tasted olive oil at these vineyards and she tasted wine and that was okay. And I wasn't, it wasn't upsetting to me. It wasn't, um, didn't make me feel like I was going to break my sobriety. And then we had alcohol and we have a full bar in our house now and I'm never tempted to go behind the bar and, uh, and, and mix myself a cocktail. I'm just not. Um, so, but that, but it, it didn't, it, that didn't happen overnight. And so with your wife, if she's ordering Domino's pizza every night and you're going like, I'm trying to stick on a diet and it's really hard when Domino's pizza, like I had to have this conversation recently with my wife, um, because I am dieting right now And she was kind of regularly breaking out the enlightened and enlightens even diet ice cream. But if you're not accounting for it during the day, it's still 400 calories a pint. Um, And that will kind of, you know, that's almost the entire deficit of a day's worth of food that I'm in. So wipes out the day's work. And I finally said to her, like, look. For a few weeks, let me get a few weeks. I'm really having trouble because you're breaking out the enlightened and then I'm eating the enlightened and I don't want to be eating the enlightened right now. And she was like, yeah, no problem. And so we stopped having enlightened. So I do think it it requires some kind of a, a communication and agreement from the other person um, to figure out some parameters to help you be successful.
3: Yeah, that's Awesome. Yeah. I think that's a really good answer for Austin. He can let us know how it goes uh, by writing exactly where you sent your question, Austin. Let us know how it's going. And if anyone else out there listening to this podcast has a question for Ethan, you can email it to us at americanglutton.net.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.